in our last message in the gospel according to Mark, which was the day before Christmas, we examined the amazing scene of the people in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth rejecting him and his gospel message, actually taking offense at him. Jesus would not force his miracles on a hostile, skeptical audience because it would stand in contradiction to his character and his will. To heal where there was fundamentally a rejection of him was just something that he opted not to do. The vast majority of the people of Nazareth exhibited their unbelief. And we read in chapter 6, the first part of verse 6, that Jesus marveled or was amazed because of their unbelief. This is a scary observation. Next in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through through 13, Jesus sends out his apostles. Mark is the only gospel writer who records how these men were sent out, that is, in pairs, two by two. In Matthew's parallel account, he may be saying the same thing by the way he lists the names of the 12 apostles there. He does that in six pairs in Matthew chapter 10, right before his account of Jesus sending them out in the next paragraph of Matthew 10. So we see there these pairs, Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, James the Younger and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. Why pairs? Jesus personally gave each pair their authority. And the wisdom here is in the fact that having two witnesses met the legal requirement for authentic testimony. And we see that in Numbers 25, Deuteronomy 17, and Deuteronomy 19. In other words, the truthfulness of their testimony about Jesus could be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And this provided mutual encouragement and prayer for their ministry. John the Baptist used this method when he sent two of his followers to ask Jesus a very important question in Luke 7, as did the early church when they sent out missionaries in Acts 13, Acts 15, and Acts 19. We see two going. In Ecclesiastes 4.9, we read that two are better than one, and there are good reasons why this is wise. Two men will usually do more work together than two men working by themselves. They'll help one another in decisions of judgment and commit hopefully fewer mistakes. They'll help one another in difficulties and encourage each other's faith. They'll stir one another up when tempted to be lazy, therefore keeping one another from lapsing into some kind of mediocrity. They'll comfort one another in times of trial and be less prone to depression. 
In Ecclesiastes 4, verse 10, we read, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Another important thing to realize here concerns the word used for sinned, the verb form of the noun apostle, which carries with it the idea of official representation, official ambassadors. In other words, this is an official commissioning. These 12 were commissioned as extensions of Christ. Jewish law dictated that the sent one is as the man who commissioned him. So the 12 were sent by Christ for a specific ministry for a specific length of time. And we'll see shortly what Jesus' specific instructions were for this initial sending. And then how Jesus changed these instructions at the Last Supper. Jesus had already prepared his disciples for this particular mission. That may seem hard to believe, but we need to think about what's already happened. How had he called them? He said, follow me, I'll make you what? Fishers of men. Jesus got away from the crowds on many occasions to give these guys special attention. And their whole time with him... The twelve had witnessed the mighty acts of Christ and listened to his wisdom. And as we've already read in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, we see there why Jesus called and appointed twelve. Back in chapter 3, these verses, we read this. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired was no application process. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that, one, they might be with him, and two, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So it's time now for the Twelve's initial sending. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And he called the Twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, first in, in verses 8 through 11, we see the specific instructions that Jesus gave to the twelve as he sends them out. And in verses 8 and 9, we see some interesting instructions about provisions. What did he say? He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Are you with them? What was the reason for these instructions? Well, the main glaring, most important reason was that Jesus wanted these men to learn early. Remember, this is the first time he's sending them out. The first time they're sent. He wanted them to learn the necessity, absolute necessity, to be totally dependent upon Christ for all their strength and to trust God to supply all their needs. Well, let's try to clear up a textual difference here between Mark's account and Matthew and Luke's accounts. There is one. I'm going to try to make this clear because you'll find this later if you haven't already, and you'll already be going, now wait a minute. So let's look at this. Mark's list of things to take and things not to take is slightly different from Matthew's. And Matthew's is in the 10th chapter. Matthew and Luke basically say the same thing, so I'm just going to point to Matthew's. Mark's list includes only two items to take. And Matthew lists those same two items as things not to take. Mark's list of what to take is a staff and to wear sandals. Matthew says not to take a staff and sandals. Are you asking the question? Didn't we just have our first Sunday school lesson in how to trust the Bible? This is important. Mark says not to take Their lists are mainly what not to take, both. But Mark says not to take bread, bag, money in their belts, and not to put on two tunics. Matthew also says not to take bag, money, and he says it as gold, silver, and copper for your belts, or two tunics. Matthew does not mention bread, but he does say that the laborer deserves his food. What does he mean? The food will come from those who hear him and receive their message and host them in their homes. So that implies the very same thing. So why the difference with whether to take a staff and sandals? Well, the best explanation revolves around the textual emphasis here about taking an extra tunic, a second tunic. So don't take an extra pair of sandals. Just wear and so take one pair. And what he means is 
and use the staff you have. It kind of follows. We're talking about extra items, most probably. In other words, as the ESV Study Bible explains it, which is very concise, Matthew records Jesus telling the disciples not to acquire a new staff or a new or extra pair of sandals for their journey. But in Mark, Jesus adds that they can take the sandals and staff that they already have. In other words, it's extra stuff, which is the point. They're supposed to be traveling light. Others propose a different explanation for the staff being that the disciples were, were permitted a walking staff, which was very different from the staff prohibited in, in Matthew 10 was mainly for self-defense. And these were, were known differences in that day. So I hope that makes sense. It's, it's always interesting to me how we can get so waylaid literally from an apparent difference but we have different authors writing about the same account <clears throat> and there are very very easy ways to see what Jesus was saying one guy thought one thing was more important the other guy thought another thing was more important the point here is what for the apostles to learn dependence upon God for the apostles to see and experience God's faithfulness to supply their food, to supply the provisions they need from the people who heard their message and then repented and believed. This initial sending is reminiscent in a lot of ways to the Exodus, in which the people were liberated from slavery in Egypt, and then what did they had to learn? which took a while and they never really learned it, about God's complete faithfulness and his provision through all sorts of difficult circumstances in their how many years of wilderness wanderings? Forty. So a lot of parallels there. Did God prove himself totally sufficient and totally faithful in the Exodus? Yes, he did. Over and over and over again. It was so much a part of, the, of Israel's history that it's mentioned over and over and over again to remind all the people that he was a faithful and good God and everything they needed he provided in a place where there wasn't hardly anything out there. So the apostles get to learn the same thing in a sh much shorter, concise kind of version of this. It's also important to note that at the Lord's Supper, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus said this in Luke 22, verses 35 and 36. He said, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. And he said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. We're not going to get into the sword thing. They already had swords, as you realize that night. And in our passage today, and later when Jesus sent out the 72, 
those sent were instructed to travel light and depend upon God's provision for all they needed through the hospitality of the people who received them. But in the next era, starting when? Jesus gave the second instructions at the Last Supper. The next era of gospel missions, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus gives notice to those sent that they should not expect that same kind of extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary providential provision. They weren't supposed to expect it. You know anybody in these days that takes off and they say, Mark 6, they took off, they didn't have anything God will provide. I think we've all met some folks that expected it all the time. But we also know that in so many ways, then God does provide in extraordinary ways when needs come up for anyone serving him, all of us in these, in these times. But the difference is you don't have the instructions not to take anything and expect it to be across the board. Not now. Not in our era. <clears throat> Instead, now, they and we should expect ordinary providence. And so should plan accordingly for their daily needs. And we just had a great example of that. With the grace and mercy of God and provision in a way, a courtyard when we heard about the cat sayings, did we not? Okay, uh, that difference is really, really important for us all to understand. Okay, and verse 10 is instruction regarding comfort. This may hit all of us a little closer to home. <laughs> and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. What does he mean? They're going into a town, Someone receives the message, they listen to what their message is about the kingdom of God at hand, about repenting to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They receive it and they say, you've you got to stay with us. Okay, remember this is two people, they're pairs. They're supposed to stay there until they depart from that town. They were instructed then to stay put, to stay in the house in which the people responded positively to the disciples' message. What are each of us thinking? Yeah, but what if, what if they get in this town, they didn't know what was going on, and then they hear that around the corner somebody will put up anybody, especially two people, and man, that woman can cook, and those, those guys have really nice beds, and you know they even have a shaded garden. You know, and maybe on the roof of their houses, you know, with a lot of water, a lot of comfort. I'll just slip over there. These guys have been nice, but I'll just say, hey, you know, for the rest of the trip, we're going we're gonna to move down the street. See the point? Jesus anticipated this. He, the implication here is they should not try to change lodging because of comfort issues. Anybody in that boat? How can we make it better? How can I be more comfortable? 
In other words, if more desirable and comfortable housing was available somewhere else, the, and the food was supposed to be better, they were supposed to stay with the folks who had been kind enough to extend hospitality. What's the point of Jesus being concerned about that? There's a, there's a much larger principle here that we, we've got to understand. The point is that the spread of the gospel had priority over my personal likes and dislikes. And it shows respect, high regard and respect for the people who have just listened and offered a a place. No matter what kind of discomfort we may feel in it. That's the spread of the gospel has the higher priority. Interesting, isn't it? And then in verse 11, we have instruction about what to do when rejected. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now let's figure out what this is. It looks like there's some bull-headed, really stern people being sent out here, doesn't it? Let's see what's going on. It was customary for the Jews who had traveled abroad to carefully shake the dust of what they considered alien lands from their feet and clothing. What this did was this act disassociated them from the pollution of those pagan places and the judgment that was to come upon them. Don't mention, don't miss that last phrase. Not just from the land, but from the coming judgment for rejecting God and being a people who rejected God. So when the apostles followed Jesus' instructions to do this, it symbolically declared any hostile village is what? Pagan. Infidels. It was a, really a, a way to signify that those people had rejected the gospel message and that they must now answer to God for themselves, by themselves, without the intermediary who was the Savior, Jesus Christ, who was starting his mission on earth to accomplish the atoning death and pay for sin by his blood. So it's them in the face of God. And it was a way that everybody understood that that was being communicated. So it really was, on the other side of the coin, a merciful prophetic act that was designed to make Israelites think seriously and deeply about their spiritual condition. Are you catching the, the, the little strange twist here? Here's, here's the twist. Since we know from Matthew's account in Matthew 10 that Jesus told his men only to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and not to any Gentile or Samaritan town. 
these people would be very familiar with the deeper meaning of Jesus' disciples shaking the dust off their feet. You catching it now? This was for pagans who weren't Jews. And here was Jewish guys of the house of Israel shaking the dust off their feet when people had rejected the message about Christ being their Messiah. That was a loud and clear cannon blast as far as you can't ignore this. You can't ignore it. These people then would be, let's put it this way, they, pro- they should be quite alarmed that they, as Jews who had God's law and the history of being called God out as God's people, were now being confronted with the fact that they were what? Eternally in peril. They were not safe. They were not believers. Wow. So when anyone assumes they are right with God because of their ethnicity or because of their background or because of their lineage or because of their works, because of their record of church attendance, etc., etc., etc. But they have not and do not repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. They are in grave danger of being eternally and justly condemned. That happens with us. But with these Jews, man, that was, that was an incredible mission that Jesus sent these guys on to their own people in towns that rejected him and rejected him and rejected him. There were many who received the message, but there were also many who did not. Talk about shaking up the status quo. Jesus was doing it through his ambassador. Why were they in such peril? Some of the towns Jesus' apostle visited were in just such danger. Why? Because they were rejecting the good news that the Messiah had come. These Israelites needed to face the fact that the apostle's message, as Matthew records it in chapter 10, verse 7, was this, quote, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that the people should repent. That's what Mark says here in his passage in verse 12. This was a direct reference, among other things, to Jesus being the promised Messiah. They've been crying out for hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. God sends him and they reject him. This is serious. To reject him was a denial of what? almost every Jew said they believed. How many Americans think they're saved and okay with God because they believe that Jesus is God? Maybe. 
what did Jesus say? Satan knows and believes that he is God in the flesh. That's not the point. It's not the saving point. It's an important point. It's a foundational point. But that is not it all. And remember, we also have something in Matthew, if you've, if you've looked there, that is even so much more serious, it's hard to even swallow. Matthew records another additional statement by Jesus about this in verse 15 of Matthew 10 that I'm sure just blew his apostles away as they left about how serious this was. He said, guys, truly, truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town which rejects me. How do you think that went over? These guys, as they were sent, the, the weightiness of the message and who Jesus was claiming to be was just really, really increasing. The weight was increasing. The, the level at which he's being elevated for who he really is is now being communicated by his men. These men who were spreading the good tidings of Jesus Christ were his ambassadors. They were bringing his word. So by rejecting Jesus' apostles, these wicked people were rejecting Jesus Christ. God in human flesh. You know, the, the words in the text are when they sent out two by two is duo, duo, literally dynamic duos there was some that were probably more dynamic than the others did you notice the last pair a zealot and Judas Iscariot I just try to picture that it's hard to <laughs> but remember their authority came from Christ So that was a, a duo where one of them was definitely not the real thing, and the other one was a zealot with a political history. I, yeah, I wish we could see that. But I think we would be more interesting seeing those pair of brothers in the first several. But all of them came back. All of them came back. And we see in verse 12 and 13 a summary about what they did. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and appointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Proclaimed here means what? This is the word for the earnest proclamation or preaching of news 
that was from God, that was initiated by God, as opposed to how that word is used so much today, how that preaching word is used today. Preaching means anything you want it to mean today. It can mean some abstract speculation or witty dialogue or on the views and you, almost always in the opinions of man. But here, this word, a proclamation or preaching, is very distinct. It's proclaiming something that's God's message. So when you think of the two last guys in this pair, but one in particular, it's God's message, and God uses his message any way he desires. And sometimes the bearers of the message have some issues. The truth is, all of us have some issues, which is why we trust the Lord to work with his truth when it's proclaimed. Notice that what they were doing was what Jesus was doing. What were they doing? Preaching, casting out demons, healing the sick. That's what Jesus was doing as he traveled and visited these places. And by these activities then, they were demonstrating that the kingdom of God had come with power. These miraculous healings, the miraculous casting out of demons were demonstration that these guys were operating with the authority and power of God Almighty. Because nobody else could do that. It was confirming their message. They proclaimed that people should repent. The, the main thing they were doing here was preaching, but also in connection with preaching, they did cast out, it says, many demons and healed the sick. Now remember, they had seen Jesus do this and were literally astonished along with everyone else. And now by his authority, God was working as they Casting out demons and healing the sick was, not, was not, not only was the demonstration of God's powerful grace and mercy, then, but it was a confirmation of the truthfulness of their message and the genuine character of their calling as apostles and ambassadors of Christ. Now, if you look in verse 30 of this same chapter, you skip over we read this the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught that is brief isn't it are we arguing with God why can't you flesh that out a little bit debriefing is what missionaries call this today usually if you go on a foreign mission uh, to eastern Asia many uh, Christian missionaries like to have their debriefings halfway home which is called Hawaii, to report, to talk about, to discuss what all God had done through the witness of his message, what all they had learned. And that's what these guys were doing. Next in our text, though, is the account about what happens to John the Baptist. And then these guys come back. But just imagine these reports. Imagine the reports of realizing that they, as Hebrews as well, were giving a message to their own people 
who were not supposed to be pagans, that was demonstrating that when they rejected the message, they actually were, and that they needed Christ. But they were also casting out demons and healing the sick. This is an incredible thing to ponder about and think about what in the world God did as these men were sent. They were realizing, and remember, they had just seen Jesus being rejected in his own hometown, so they were sort of ready for this. But knowing that, that it's not just one victory after another, it's in God's sovereign will, but that rejection would be a big part of what this means. These guys had to learn it early, and it looks like they were actually starting to have their eyes open. So we have a long way to go. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's yours, that you gave to us. We thank you that we can study it. We pray that we learn how to communicate why we study it, why we believe it, why it's historical truth. Oh, God, we pray that you would open us up to being able to see you more clearly through your word, to see our need to depend on you totally through these accounts in your word, and just to be overwhelmed by the majesty of your son, the Christ who came to die for us in our place and take your condemnation for sin upon himself so that we could wear and be clothed in his righteousness and be able to stand before you, the almighty God. What a gift. We pray that we would not keep taking these truths for granted, but that they would change us from the inside out. They would work in us, that we wouldn't be able to forget them, that we would grow in our understanding more and more. And even in this account, oh God, we thank you that we see Jesus and trusting a bunch of guys who are still having trouble even thinking about who he really was, send them out with his authority, Jesus knowing this was the right time for them to go. Jesus knowing that his power and truth could use anyone. Jesus knowing that his proclamation of the truth would be backed up, backed up by miraculous workings for this period to prove who he was for those whose eyes would see it. And God, we, we thank you that, that you worked in this way. God, we, we all know our missionaries and we know so many others that have gone to tough places here in our own land, in our own communities, and tough places uh, elsewhere. And we know that the faith that they have to trust you to to communicate your word is used as your word is lifted up to bring those you've called to yourself to yourself. And we are called to do the same thing in the areas where you've put us. And oh God, 
help us not determine whether to obey or not to obey by a projected win-loss column where we can't stand anything but the wins and to see you work in ways that we want you to, but that we can trust you with the big picture, with your plan, with your word. Lot, oh Lord, we love you. We thank you that you've placed us in your son. And we ask that this year we can grow greatly in understanding your faithfulness, your timing, and what it means to depend on you, what it means to know you, and to revel in your greatness of accepting us through Christ. We ask all these things in his precious name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.